0: Hi, So community, this is Amanda. Meg, Kate, and I are taking a brief break, but in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this episode of Fiber Nation, our sister podcast, entitled Home Ec versus Hitler. The episode explores the history of home economics programs, which is where many sewists got their start, and how the programs opened up professional opportunities for women. Enjoy the episode, and we'll be back to you very soon with new episodes of So & Tell Podcast. Home economics had this central tension from the start, and the question was whether this was empowering or repressive. The founders of home economics saw saw their field as empowering, as creating opportunities for women. But at the same time, they were dealing with a lot of people in the world, particularly men, who thought that this was all a great way um, to keep women in their place, especially women of color. And eventually, that really turned against them. On today's
1: episode, home economics. And if you think home ec deals mostly with food and nutrition, child care, and managing a household, you'd be right. But there was a decade or so, just before and after the Second World War, when sewing was a major part of home economics programs across the country and truly a form of empowerment for a very brief period. So... Rosie the Riveter, that coverall-wearing icon of women flocking to work in factories and machine shops, how many of you know that her outfit was just one of many designed by a government agency specifically tailored for women and part of a nationwide fashion campaign, one that might as well have been called Home Sewing Versus Hitler? I'm Allison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. Swallow Richards was remarkable for several different things. She was the first woman to go to MIT in 1871, and that was before they even admitted women. And she later became the first female chemistry professor there, although she never actually received a salary. Her interest in public health led to the first water quality standards in the U.S. and the first sewage treatment plants. She was basically the first ecofeminist, way before that was even a word. And among all the other things that Ellen did was to create a new discipline home economics. And if any of you listening have high school memories like I do of badly sewn jumpers or dismal casseroles, you really need to let that go because home economics or domestic science, as it was first called, was a truly radical endeavor. Although it was disguised as training women to be better housekeepers, in reality, it gave women choices that they might not otherwise have had
0: inside and outside the home. So, Home economists that the founding had two main goals. One was to bring science into the home to make it more efficient, to make the home easier and faster to take care of so that women would have time for other things. They would have time for paid work. They would have time to study. They would have time to with their kids for anything they wanted to do. And the other goal was to professionalize the home and to turn this women's sphere into a range of careers in science, in business, in education, and careers where women would be accepted because it was all home adjacent, but where they could actually earn money. I'm Danielle Dreylinger. I'm a journalist based in New Orleans, and I'm the author of the new book, The Secret History of Home Economics. Reading
1: Danielle's book, I had to admire the sheer sneakiness of these early domestic science programs. Remember, this was the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when there just weren't a lot of options for women outside the home, beyond teaching or working in textile and ceramic factories. But with this new discipline, the duty to feed her family might translate into a woman studying nutrition and then becoming a dietitian in a hospital. A thorough knowledge of hygiene could lead to a role in public health efforts. Ellen Richards was just one of many influential women, white and black, who saw domestic science as a path forward, out of the house.
0: And it was a way to get recognition for the work they did in the house as well. Because one thing that home economists recognized that people did not recognize outside of that was the economic value of a woman's time.
1: Now, women have always worked, but that work was invisible, and it still is today for that matter. At the turn of the century, a married woman might work over 50 hours a week, and that doesn't include childcare. Depending on your social class, you might have one or more servants to help, but even middle class women with at least some help worked a lot. Domestic science wasn't so much about working faster or harder, but smarter. It applied cost analysis principles to daily chores. Was it more efficient or cost effective to focus on some tasks while paying other people to do the rest? The answer often depended on who you were especially when it came to home sewing.
0: Sewing was one of those core tasks and job prospects that home economics looked at from early on. Uh, It's also very relevant that home economics came of age in many places in land grant colleges in agriculture schools. So they were working hand in glove with, uh, sheep farmers, with cotton farmers, with, you know, flax farmers, with, with the the businesses and the farms that were producing fabric in America. And there were always efforts in the field to make sure that people who sewed were using these American fibers and supporting American farmers. Uh, at the same time, Sewing was al- always held a, an unexpectedly fraught position within home economics. Like so many things we talk about on the show,
1: this comes down to the Industrial Revolution. Household servants, immigrants, women of color, were moving to factory work. And these factories in turn produced affordable, ready-made clothing. Was home sewing even a good use of women's time anymore?
0: Early on, one of the home economists wrote that it made no sense for an educated woman to sew her children's clothes but pay somebody else to educate her children. Rather, she should be educating her children and she could pay somebody else to make the clothes. And at the same time, you know, there. Some people have more time than money. And for those women, you know, they were sewing their families' clothes because they didn't have the money to buy it. Or if you were African-American in the South, there weren't very many stores you could even go to.
1: So there was a lot of academic argument in those early years. But then something made home sewing important, no matter what your social class, the Great War. Though home economics or domestic science programs had been growing since the late 1800s, World War I marked a turning point. (laughs) Dietitians, mostly women, became hugely important in making sure troops and hospital patients were well-nourished. And they developed new recipes to make up for shortages of sugar, wheat, meat. Side note here. No matter what Beyond Burger wants you to think, pea protein is not a new thing. Pea Protein had a whole team of women working on recipes for it during World War I. And while knitting gets all the publicity during this time, people did spend a lot of time sewing things for refugees in Red Cross hospitals using government-approved patterns. Now, once the government realized that so-called domestic arts were key to well-fed armies and well-run hospitals, it wanted to expand these programs way beyond the war effort into daily life. And it needed a whole new agency to handle that expansion.
0: The federal government established the Bureau of Home Economics within the Agriculture Department in the early 1920s after World War I, where home economics had really come into its own and you know, become, taken on a public presence. It employed more women scientists than any other entity in the United States. And they were, they they turned their attention to economics, to doing time use studies uh, for women in farms to food and nutrition, and to textiles. A team within the Bureau of Home Economics focused on creating sewing patterns that were
1: practical and fairly simple to make using cost-effective American materials. The Bureau itself didn't produce the patterns, but it gave the plans to commercial pattern companies. And we have links to some of these patterns in our show notes page, so do be sure to check them out. And the Bureau doubled down on the concept that a woman's time was important. One of the things Danielle told me about were patterns for toddlers that allowed them to dress themselves. And if you've ever tried to dress a toddler, you kind of understand why this is a big deal. As we moved into the Great Depression, the Bureau continued to create smart, simple sewing patterns, but its focus moved to domestic food relief programs. And these usually included nutritious, if kind of awful, recipes like spaghetti with carrots and white sauce, or macaroni with canned corn and hot dogs. But clouds were gathering on the horizon again. From the NBC Newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked the Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. This bulletin came to you from the NBC News. On December seventh, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, bringing the U.S. into World War II. Immediately, everything changed. Factories roared to life, creating the goods that armies and troops needed. And with men shipping overseas, more and more of those factory workers were women. One factoid women were over 65 percent of aviation workers in 1944 when a few years earlier they were barely one percent two-thirds of the jobs in defense industries can be done by women today and officials of the defense program are advocating more extensive job training for women and girls During World War II, over 19 million women joined the US workforce. My sources conflict with one another here, but it's quite possible that one in four married women worked outside the house to at least some extent during the war. And all that blather about whether sewing was truly economical, it kind of went out the window.
0: World War II was a time when the, the myth of sewing as being practical really became the reality. As women joined the war workforce, the Bureau of Home Economics addressed a question that might sound frivolous, but had possible life-and-death significance. What should they wear?
1: Because we are not talking just factory workers. You had women suddenly doing the majority of work on farms, driving tractors, and doing hard, messy labor. You had women working in labs, where the last thing you want is for a full sleeve to knock over a test tube.
0: Women working in industrial plants need costumes which are comfortable and safe around machinery. Uniforms which meet these needs have been designed. So one of the things that happened during World War II is the Bureau of Home Economics came out with a remarkable set of patterns uh, called work clothes for women. Danielle reads me a
1: transcript from the Bureau's regular radio program where a home economist named Clarice Scott outlined the
0: issue. The woman who does hard, active work has been the forgotten woman of the fashion page. No one ever designed an outfit for doing such things as milking or working in a factory. Leaving aside ugliness, a loose jacket or dress could get caught in farm or production line machinery. Neither men's clothes nor old dresses suited the purpose, because they weren't designed for it. A scientist as well as a seamstress, Scott analyzed farm and
1: factory work and designed more than a dozen patterns for the Bureau— these work clothes were meant to be safe around machinery and easy to bend, stoop, and reach in. They are astonishingly well-designed. Scott liked to declare that every seam served a purpose.
0: These garments, these the work clothes for women garments, were revolutionary, really. Nobody had designed clothing like this for women before And these were, you know, this was a situation where you couldn't buy these clothes in a store. They didn't exist. You needed to sew them. And to be sure, the Bureau provided these patterns to clothing manufacturers as well. But this is World War II when fabric is being rationed. Fabric is in short supply. And this is a point in time where sewing really does become important, not only because home sewists could actually use more material than commercial uh, clothing manufacturers, they were given a special dispensation, but because people were making over old clothes. You know, it was mend and make do is the British slogan. So this field suit in the work clothes for women, for instance. Um, so this is, you know, this is not for like hoeing the garden. This is, they you know, caring for cattle. This is driving tractors. uh, And they said it needed a sturdy suit that allows freedom of action and is reasonably cool for hot weather because, of course, you're outside.
1: You can find a photo of the suit on our show notes page. The pants have small vents at the waist to help keep the wearer cool. They have slide fasteners at the ankles to keep the hem from catching on random stuff in the barn or to keep pesky grasshoppers out when you were in the field. The top is loose and gathered at the back so you could reach for things without your shirt pulling up. The lower part of the sleeves actually detached in case you wanted short sleeves for hot weather. And extra deep pockets made sure that nothing would fall out while you were doing a lot of bending and stooping. Danielle walked me through several patterns, pointing out how they differed from and in many ways improved upon men's
0: work clothes. Women had always worked on the farm, certainly, and it was just invisible Labor, because they also had so much to do in the farmhouse. Uh, mm-hmm. But now, you know, it's 1942. Men are away at war. Women were very publicly taking the lead in the farm and in you know in, and in jobs where they legitimately hadn't worked before. And it definitely it made, it definitely made the work more visible. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the mechanics suit, for instance. So this is for women, mecha- women's mechanics, gasoline station attendants, and some factory workers. And this one has uh, let's say says plenty of action room is built into this suit. So there's lots of gathers. There's loose short sleeves. There's a box, the boxed crotch and darts set in below the waistline give bending and stooping room. They have as has a long front opening, so it's easy to get into. So this would have been a coverall. And mm-hmm. a zipper prevents gaps that might catch on machinery. There are zippers on the sides. There's a belt that fastens at the front that uh, with an adjustable sliding snap buckle, which unsnaps if the belt ever catches on anything, thus avoiding any injury to the worker or damage to the suit. She's reading and describing patterns that seem like work are close 2.0.
1: There's a rain slicker pattern that includes leggings for extra warmth. There's a lab dress that looks like a lab coat until you realize the pockets have been moved so they don't bang against the lab tables.
0: There is such a deep understanding of the job and the wearer in these these descriptions. And there's something
1: else in these patterns as well. Unlike the hand-knit socks of World War I, where women's labor supported the war overseas, the home-sewn frocks of World War II represented a different sort of battle, one for dignity and respect on the home front. The patterns weren't just practical, they were professional-looking. Women were now dressed for the job and they looked it. So a pattern for a nurse's uniform would stress that the fabric should be water-repellent and remain crisp-looking. In a hospital where nurses were subordinate to mostly male doctors, it was a way to remain dignified. Women were proud of the work that they did, and their clothing let them show that. And these patterns also recognized that women continued to work in the home, and that it was work. Danielle reads another pattern description
0: to me, this one for a house dress. Women who spend long hours in hot kitchens want cool, pretty dresses that are easy to get into. The surplus dress shown here is collarless and has only a suggestion of sleeves rather than those which might cling to the arms on warm days. You know, This book is putting working in a factory at the same level as working in a kitchen. And that is something that home economics has focused on for a long time. It's not only professionalizing the work of the home, but just revealing the work of the home, revealing that the work of the home is work, and it deserves as much respect as work outside the home. So home economists are producing amazing
1: patterns that are as much an existential argument as garments that repelled grease and cow poop. But remember, this was wartime. Many goods were scarce. How did you get all the stuff that you needed to sew these things or even find out that the patterns existed? with the help of a department store chain called J.C. Penney's. In April 1902, a man named James Cash Penny opened a dry goods store in Kemmerer, Wyoming. The store was 25 by 40 feet, and it sold less than $3,000 in that first year. Penny seemed to have a knack for business, though, and by 1907, he had three stores and annual sales that topped $160,000. By 1912, he had 34 stores and sales of over 2 million. These stores didn't look much like the J.C. Penney's of today. No kitchen aids, no hair salon. Penny sold dry goods, meaning fabrics, thread, needles, buttons, along with ready-made clothing. In 1914, Penny relocated to New York City to be closer to the garment district there and keep on top of changing fashions and home decor trends. And in the 1930s, he went a step further, creating a sewing pattern company called Advance. These patterns were sold only at Penny stores and boosted sales of fabrics and other sewing goods. Penny had all of the ingredients for success. He had a solid retail footprint, tip-to-tail supply chain, deep understanding of what customers wanted or could be convinced that they wanted, but he needed a catalyst to bring this all together. He needed a brand that was more than just a dry goods store, even a successful one, and he found it.
0: But in the late 1930s, they hired a woman named Mary Oman, and she started in 1939 a magazine for home economics teachers called Fashions and Fabrics. And this was a really remarkable magazine. It was officially designed for home economics teachers And it was teaching them about sewing and pattern design. It was promoting advanced patterns. It was promoting JCPenney fabrics. And one of the tricks was that it was kept at the store. So you had to go, teachers had to go into their local JCPenney's to pick up the latest issue of Fashions and Fabrics, which came out twice a year. And so that got them
1: into the store. It's really hard to find copies of fashion and fabrics today, and I suspect it's because people who have them hold on to them. Each issue is wonderfully illustrated. It had actual fabric swatches, lots of them, glued onto the pages. It had, say, articles about cotton fabric, how nylon yarn was made, how pennies tested all of its fabrics and dyes using the latest science. It had in-depth articles on cutting pattern pieces to fit your own measurements, and how to cut fabric so it would drape perfectly on the body. And it had a lot about trends, colors and prints, fabric types, accessories. It was the perfect marketing funnel meets all-you-can-eat sewing and fashion binge, guaranteed to create future Penny's customers. JCPenney tried
0: to reach home economics teachers, who then would be, of course, teaching home economics students who would be teenagers or college-level students, who would then become consumers of JCPenney's patterns and fabrics uh, on their own dime. This might
1: seem like an analog version of Apple, whose closed system forces you to become a customer for life. But while he obviously wanted to make money, he also believed that his store should be a kind of community hub for information. The magazine, including reams of technical advice, was free, even if you never bought a single thing after. And the magazine is also a striking timeline of American history, article by article, dress by dress.
0: One of the things that fascinated me the most about fashions and fabrics is, you know, the first issue that we have is from 1939. So, you know, people are emerging from the Depression and World War II has not come to the U.S. yet. And so we have this, you know, flash of normalcy and then the war happens. And home economics began working on the war effort. Significantly before the US actually joined, before Pearl Harbor, Uh, the US was supporting the Allies, and there were a lot of people who thought that probably we were going to be drawn into it. And you see an immediate shift in fashions and fabrics at this time from this, you know, blithe excitement to concern to fear so for instance fall winter 1940 the editors page which you know was talking about trends trends in fashion the new fashions literally breathe the spirit of america since europe can no longer be depended upon as a source of inspiration our designers have come to the fore sponsoring creations that are typically american with emphasis upon the simple wearable fashions that are traditional with us Fashions and Fabrics becomes a wartime magazine. Uh, They created new colors that were these patriotic colors like Old Glory Red and Old Glory Blue and California Sun. The magazine went beyond fashion propaganda, though. It became a
1: source for the technical info that sewists needed during wartime. In fact, in 1942, Penny said, quote, We feel that our company is well-equipped to make a substantial contribution
0: toward thrift and saving of the nation. They began giving very practical information, detailing, for instance, the War Production Board's rules for fashion rationing and fabric rationing. So there's a page for instance and they did this more than once that give dimensions for, you know, a coat, a blouse, an evening dress, a daytime dress. How because the war board had put put rules in place about how many pockets a dress could have, how wide the skirt could be. As people who pay attention to fashion will know, like this is when you start getting these very plain dresses, these narrow dresses, shorter. And what's especially confusing is that you actually had different rules for commercially made garments and home sewing garments. So Fashions and Fabrics was very concerned about, you know, hey, this is what you can do if you sew from home. Uh, And they also promoted the Bureau of Home Economics patterns. So the fall-winter 1942 issue has this wonderful patriotic cover with four women saluting. And two of them are wearing Bureau of Home Economics patterns, which Advance had manufactured. And they have this wonderful article in it called Sew for Service and Defense.
1: You can see the effect of the war in the magazine itself as well. Those wonderful fabric swatches slowly disappeared as wartime scarcity made them impractical. The magazine also made clear that the fabrics they sold might not actually be available due to production issues. And they pivoted from make it new to mend and make do. A magazine designed ultimately to make you buy stuff was now telling you how to revamp clothing you already had. One article pointed out that most households had unused men's clothing in their closets. Why not take the more worn items and create, say, a new coat for your growing daughter? And then it told you
0: how, step by step. So, yeah. for instance, the center front crease on a man's trousers is apt to be worn thin. This was eliminated in the little girl's coat by placing the coat front with shoulder darts on the thin line. And the remainder of the original crease was removed by making a seam.
1: Looking through these issues with Danielle, what really strikes me is the incredible technical knowledge these pattern designers had. It is so much harder to remake a garment from something else than it is to make one from scratch. And yet they gave excellent instructions on how to do just that. If the war effort had been about women's empowerment outside the home, the post-war period was its opposite. Once the war was over, most women were pushed out of those factory and office jobs to make room for returning GIs. And the role of home economics itself began shifting. It may have started as a way to empower women, to give them choices outside the home. But the schools that taught home economics and the magazines that promoted its principles were generally run by men. And after the war, more and more, home economics was seen as a way to create the perfect homemaker or homemaker in training.
0: And you can really see this in the magazine. And then all of a sudden, it's just overnight. All of the women's empowerment working in the world is gone. 1946, spring, summer, it's a totally different mood. Sketches are in a different style. The dresses are really different. They start talking about how to dress for your figure. For the first time, there's a page on skincare and how to make your complexion look the best, and the pattern descriptions. And these descriptions here for 1946 are just fluffy. A bonbon of a blouse, ever so pretty and crepe or sheer, soft and full with a bow at the throat and ruffles in all the right places. The new sewing patterns have this weird passivity about them. The professional,
1: practical work-oriented clothes are gone for the most part. And they replaced with dresses,
0: quote, guaranteed
1: to win a beau's approval.
0: It, all of a sudden, it looks like Seventeen magazine. There's no work clothes. There's nothing from four H. There's nothing from for, about service. There's nothing about work. And you know, on the one hand, I, I look at that and I understand that everybody, I'm sure, was just exhausted and could use a little levity. On the other hand, knowing as we know, the repression of women. After World War II and how women were forced out of the workplace to make way for the men who are returning. And so much that, you know, my my mother's generation grew up with that has influenced us to this day. And I just, you know, to go from these strong women proud of their jobs and their defense service to a bonbon of a blouse makes me faintly sick. What strikes me about the 1939 issues of fashions and fabrics before the war hit is that it shows women in a range of life roles there are patterns for little kids there's things that talk about women being mothers there's student there's graduation dresses there's things to travel in there's things for work there's things for you know work a- athletics it shows this Really wide ranging view of women's roles in the world.
1: That world officially seemed to get a lot narrower after the
0: war, but that narrow view hid a more nuanced reality. So even though the contents of the magazine are showing women in this very restricted, you know, childhood and then domestic roles. The reality is they were being created by home economists who were working women. They were being used in the classroom by home economics teachers who were also working women. So even though the the contents of the magazine don't show that, the magazine as a whole does show women in a more broad role than our vision of the feminine mystique.
1: Now, this comparison is rather harsh, but I was reminded of Serena Joy's character in The Handmaid's Tale, who had a very public life telling other women to stay home. One of the saddest and, frankly, most awful patterns from the Bureau of Home Economics came in 1950. A so-called shopper's coat, it was this nun-like garment with pockets for subway tokens, shopping lists, even a built-in grocery bag holder. If the home economist had become Serena Joy, they were now designing for Martha's.
0: And it's all very clever, but it's also such a sad reflection of the diminution of women's roles. And it was not long after this that the federal government began hacking away at the budget of the Bureau of Home Economics and within 15 years had closed it all together.
1: When I was in high school. Home economics was still mandatory for girls. I remember baking biscuits and sewing a skirt, but mostly I remember it was just kind of a joke, just something you had to drudge through. If I thought about it at all, it was to ask what relevance home ec even had to anything. Before reading Danielle's book, I had no idea there even was a Bureau of Home Economics or that government agencies gave women the knowledge, the tools, and the clothes to make their way into the world via all sorts of paths. And maybe that ignorance tells you how far home ec had fallen from its radical beginnings. Tellingly, in 1953, the Bureau of Home Economics Bulletin prominently featured dresses and aprons for work in the home. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Alison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Julia Pillard helped with research. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media. And our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer.